Hello, and welcome to the 18th episode of Wildfire Matters, the podcast that covers all aspects of wildland fire management for the Bureau of Land Management, or BLM. We talk with the people who help manage and protect our public lands, many dedicating their lives to the profession. We have one of those individuals here with us today. Today, we are coming to you from Alaska, talking with a few folks that work for Alaska Fire Service. Since I was on assignment up here for two weeks and relatively little fire activity, which I guess is good <laughs> after the couple bad years they've had up here, we've decided to dedicate a series of podcasts on Alaska Fire Service and some of the positions that are here that may be a little different than we might see in the lower 48. And to kick it off, I am happy to be with the Deputy State Director of Fire and Aviation, Kent Slaughter. Thank you, Kent, for joining Thank you, Carrie, for having me on and for being up here and doing this. This is great. Yes. Hopefully we'll get you some recognition for all the work you do because you're so kind of removed from what we're doing down in the lower 48. So if anyone has any questions about Alaska, this might be time to tune in. I've had the opportunity to spend some time with people working up here, and it's been a great couple weeks, and it's interesting on everything that you, you do and how you get by <laughs> with what you have. Let's start by telling our listeners a little bit about you and how you got started. How did I get started? Well, <clears throat> I can go back to when I was a 16-year-old or <laughs> even before, but my first fire that I was on was actually when I was working for the Forest Service as a Youth Conservation Corps enrolled, working for a research office that used to be up here, and they were doing some prescribed fire. And so I was out there helping out with that. And it, didn't always, it didn't go right the first day. So I got to have Watch Retardant come in and have a great time. After that, after college, I started off with the Forest Service as a soils technician on the Chugach and went out with the, as part of a militia, went down to Idaho in 89, we were an interagency crew from Alaska, and then started up here at the Alaska Fire Service in 91 on our North Star crew. So, you know, I can relate it back. My grandfather was an assistant district ranger, and uh, when I went to take 590, uh, found in the back of the classroom pictures that they'd stuck up of all the old F-band classes in 1961. There he was as a in the National Fire Behavior class, so I heard from him about fire for a long time. So you had it in your blood, basically. You know, I could say that, or at least I was tickled <laughs> by the idea of doing it. So, yeah, he'd entice me. Great. Well, Kent, I really wanted him here because I hear he has a wealth of knowledge about the history of Alaska Fire Service and how it's a little bit different than how we do things in Lower 48. Can you give us a little background or overview? Oh, I could, <laughs> I could go on for a long time. What's really important about what's different about Alaska Fire Service, in my view, really relates to the history of land management in Alaska which then influences fire management. And it goes back to first European contact here. So the Russians were on the coast of Alaska back in the 1700s, mid 1800s settlements, and they didn't have any treaties with Alaska natives. In, 19, in 1867, when the U.S. bought Alaska, the U.S. didn't sign any treaties with Alaska natives. 
by 1906, the Alaska Native Allotment Act was passed. That was after the Indian Allotment Act in Lower 48, but similar in terms of setting up 160-acre allotments for Alaska Natives. And there were a few Native reserves, Indian reserves at the time they were called, but most of the land was controlled by the General Land Office. Alaska was still a territory in up until 1959. And so the General Land Office, and then after BLM was created in 46, BLM managed almost all of Alaska. The public domain was, for BLM was 300 and odd million acres at the time. So that's a lot of land to manage and a lot of different things coming into play. In 1959, the Statehood Act was passed, and that gave 104 million acres of that federal unclaimed domain to the state of Alaska. BLM, in the meantime, had a fire operation under the districts. It had started as the Alaska Fire Control Service with um, Roger Robinson, who later was the first director of the Boise Interagency Fire Center. He, before that, he'd been the Alaska State Director, but he'd started off as an assistant for, assistant forester um, for the General Land Office. But we have a fire control service that rolled into the districts. By 1959, we had the first BLM smoke jumpers. They were here. And then we had the Statehood Act in late 59, uh, or 1959. So BLM just kept running the fire control operation through the districts um, in through the mid-60s, and the state started selecting land and started paying BLM to manage fires on those lands. But at the same time, because we'd never signed any treaties with Alaska Natives, they started asserting their right to the land and saying, hey, this is our land. We never abrogated our rights. We never gave anything up. Um, and that culminated in two things. Number one, um, Secretary of Interior, and I don't remember exactly which year it was, I think it was 67 or 68, um, stopped any transfer, halted all transfer of land to the state until those Native claims were settled, which led to Congress passing the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act in 1971. And that um, settled those claims, created a whole different land tenure, um, 44 and a half million acres of BLM managed land, mostly BLM managed land, um, was transferred to Alaska Native corporations as they could select it. Once it was transferred, it became fee simple land. But there's one part of it that became uh, three USC 1620 <laughs> real property. Yes, all these properties, but it, you know it's really important to get some of that stuff out right. So, and that part says that real property interests conveyed under that act um, shall receive wildland fire protection services from the U.S. at no cost as long as the lands conveyed do not generate substantial revenue. Nobody's ever decided what substantial <laughs> revenue is, yeah. so we are still providing that fire control. And it's, and that's one of the different things is we pay for it on all that native land, that 44 and a half million acres of native land. Um, 
it's private land, it's fee simple. That's the only tie to the federal government is that we still provide that service for them. Did you say fee simple? What, fee simple. What, what, fee simple means that it's owned um, by, like you own your land, the land that you own, that your house is on. If you have a house, if you don't live in an apartment, that's fee simple. You own it, you're, you're the only owner. It's not held in trust. It's not trust land held by the federal government for somebody. It's fee simple. They, the corporations are for-profit corporations. They own the they own the land. So that allowed then the state to start getting its land again. And in the 1970s, the state started taking on uh, fire management on the land that had been transferred to the state or that was private land. And they started doing that along the road network where BLM had previously been managing the fires. And that's great. That's wonderful, you know, taking on ownership of it. But, you know, they had to stand up a whole organization that didn't exist and figure out how to pay for it, passed a state tax just for that purpose in the early 70s, back when Alaska liked to pay, people in Alaska actually paid taxes. <laughs> that was part of what happened with the history. The, another part that's related of why AFS is where it is, is the 1970s saw a real draw, a real decrease in the amount of use of the military up here. And so Fort Wayne Raid Army Garrison had lots of empty space and the BLM had been in rented space around Fairbanks. So the district office moved out onto Fort Wainwright and eventually had a building built. And with that came the fire operation. So that started, we came out here in the 1970s, in the mid-70s, when the garrison was at a pretty low staffing level. Another part of the Native Claims Settlement Act called for designation of national interest lands. And that ended up with D2 lands that were called. President Carter did designate some lands. He wasn't very popular for that. And so in 1980, Congress passed the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act. And under that, that moved more acreage out from BLM's management to Fish and Wildlife Service and to the Park Service. So about 97 million acres that had been previously managed by the BLM got moved to the Park Service and Fish and Wildlife Service. So when you think about it, between the Statehood Act the Native Claims Settlement Act and the ANILCA, we ended up transferring about 250 million acres out of BLM management to other agencies. So the Alaska Fire Service was stood up in 1981 by the BLM, knowing that after talking with other land managers that we had all these new units, park units, refuges, they, rather than stand up their own fire management operations, they said, BLM, you're already doing it. Why don't you keep doing it? And so in 82, we had a secretarial order that basically said, yes, BLM, Alaska Fire Service, you're responsible for doing all that. You're going to take on managing fire operations for all the Department of Interior. So that's partly how we got here. That then eventually became part, that Secretary of Order became part of the departmental manual, and now it's 620DM5, specific to Alaska. But another part that's different about here 
is our mission because, well, because of that mission, because of now the DM, we provide this fire management across jurisdictional boundaries. And we've arranged with the state of Alaska back by 1983, we set up statewide boundaries across the state where the state works as the protecting agency and then other areas, the BLM works as protecting agency irrespective of who is the jurisdictional agency. So the jurisdictional agency would be the land manager, Fish and Wildlife Service, Park Service, BLM for federal agencies. And so that would be the, like the districts and the field offices for BLM. And then you have the protecting agency, which is Department of Natural Division, Forestry and Fire Protection, or the Alaska Fire Service. So we, we're really different that way. Another part that's really different about us up here is our fire management plan is a statewide fire management plan bought into by agencies. And it, the first one was 1983 and that was actually 1982. And that was the town on Inchumina plan. And that was another product of the National Interest Lands Conservation Act because it set up these large scale councils to figure out how to actually manage all this new national interest land and how to do it in coordination with the state and private land managers. But in that plan, it set up how we respond to fires today. It recognized that we couldn't control all the fires in Alaska. We had been unsuccessful and the fire has a role in the environment, in the natural ecosystem. So it set up four response levels that we still use today to allow fire to play its natural role in the ecosystem where it can. And then where we need to protect things, we do protect things. So those were all just, I, like I said, I could go on <laughs> and on and on. Right. Well, it's so interesting because there are so many different aspects of that, just the management. And you have different management of land, but then the fire is still under BLM. The, opera the, the, the operational part of fire yes. is under BLM. The, the land manager, the district office, or the refuge or whomever, they tell us what they would like us to do, we implement for them. So they don't have to have, you know, a refuge doesn't have to have a fire. They have, they may have one or two fire staff that cut, they'll have two fire staff that cover multiple refuges um, that serve as sort of liaison to us and then do their fuels management work or plan their fuels management work. Same with the districts, um, same with the parks. So if there's a fire in the park, BLM has protection, but is in communication with the park of how right. that response is going yep. to go. Yep. It's all coordinated with the land manager. We don't act independently. I mean, if we can't get a hold of the land manager, we base it off of the plan. So that mostly occurs with village corporations because those are small sometimes hard to track down who's actually in charge today. That's so interesting. And yeah, working with the villages too. And it sounds like you used to do training with the village, like with people in the village for crew, for fire suppression crews, basically. Now they have contract crews. Right. So we work? used to have across the state, there were 60 odd crews between BLM sponsored crews and DNR sponsored crews. And those, because of a variety of factors, different economic opportunities for folks in the villages, 
probably less use of the crews on fires, especially after we started doing more fire management response, you know, is that wasn't trying to put out every fire. Participation really started dropping, especially in the early 2000s. And then once we implemented medical standards, that really killed the program. You know, and a few slow years where people didn't get out, that didn't help the interest either. So BLM, we moved to a contract operation. It took several years to get that up and running, but we now have contract crews based in a number of the villagers, first BLM contract crews that exist. And those have been really successful to provide steadier employment. There are fewer crews, but the crews that exist, they get really steady employment most summers. This is an exceptional summer for everybody, right. but most years they go out multiple times. They're available nationally, and it's really changed some of that relationship because they're, as a contractor, they're responsible for everything. The only thing we provide is radios, but they provide the training. They provide everything. So it's, it's changed that relationship. I used to go out in the springtime to do, put on EFF training, pack testing, Prior to pack testing, doing the step test yeah, with yeah. folks, uh, oh, that, that takes or, the run, or the run, <laughs> you know, out into a village and do that. Um, yeah, so it's really changed a lot of that. So, what is your duties as state director of fire and aviation? So, deputy, I, state, deputy director. state director. So, I've got three roles. Um, so, as the deputy state director, we've got the it's the division of fire and aviation and. Alaska Fire Service is really that division, but we have, so we, we have the operational role for all of the DOI, like I said earlier, and then specifically for BLM, we have aviation management for BLM Alaska, which is huge. We fly, I think it's as much or more total um, than the rest of the BLM in the lower 48 in terms of hours flown every year, um, because that's how we get around. That's how our resource books get around is aviation. Um, so it's policy, it's budget, it's providing guidance, working with the districts. Um, when I have that hat on, when I have the manager of AFS, it's the hat of Hey, how do we keep this place running, lights on, uh, people happy, <laughs> dealing with personnel, dealing with just all the fun, knit-knot stuff of that. <laughs> and then as a state FMO, it's representing uh, you know, Alaska to the fire leadership team, uh, making sure that uh, decisions made are well-informed, that the perspective from up here is represented. And that then I bring that national perspective back to Alaska and help people understand what's going on on a national scale. So it, it's working both ways that way. A lot of hats. A lot of hats. <laughs> and with that, so what is it like working for AFS, Alaska Fire Service? Well, <sighs> I guess compared to the lower 48. Compared to the lower 48. Well, for one thing, we don't have an engine program. Yeah. Eastern states doesn't have an engine program and Alaska doesn't have an engine program. We don't have heavy equipment that way. We get around by helicopters, airplanes, boats. And we have a boat program. We we are really different that way. Um, 
in terms of where our focus is, where our people's strengths are. So there's that. We're centralized. Uh, you know, in the lower 48, the fire programs each work for a district manager that are at the district level. And here, uh, because we're the fire service, we, you know, we're working for everybody, um, but we're not under the districts. The districts do have uh, fuels programs that they've started up recently, but in terms of operations, it's all at Alaska Fire Service. Um, we're spread out. We've got a site in Galena that the you know, only way to get to Galena is either a long, <laughs> really long 400-mile boat ride um, <laughs> or a hour and a half to two and a half hour plane ride, depending on what airplane you're on. And that's we're open there every summer. We have people stationed there all summer long. And that is just so we've got a base to get out to the rest of Western Alaska. Um, we've got a site up in Fort Yukon that we just staff in the summertime. But again, Fort Yukon, you can only get there by air or by boat. So we we get to our fires that way. Um, one of the real different things is, you know, I mentioned earlier our fire management plan says we're going to manage um, fires in a lot of cases to benefit the ecosystem as part of that ecosystem. So we do a lot of site-specific protection. We don't try to um, suppress most, on a lot of our fires, we're not trying to suppress the whole fire. We're just trying to uh, protect sites, whether it's Alaska Native allotments, because those are trust lands held by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or it's you know, some other specific site that a land manager wants us to protect. It may be a cultural or historic site, it may be um, some other high value site, or we're trying to keep the fire from burning into a area that you know has higher protection level. So we'll manage, just respond to one side of the fire. Um, but you know, it's it's all mobile, it's almost all mobilized by air, which takes time. It takes yeah. a lot of time. And then we're the far end of the supply chain from the lower 48. So you talk cash to cash orders that they do in the lower 48 and you know, the trucks are moving right. all the time here. Um, last summer, I know they had a hard time even finding drivers and trucks to get cash orders from the lower 48 when they were doing cash to cash. And by the time some of those trucks arrived, um, it was two weeks later and we didn't need the equipment anymore because <laughs> it had started to rain. So you've got to think about things yeah, like logistics that. are logistics are so important. Yeah. So 195 million acres is what we protect, which is a huge area. And that's just on our side of that line. We're actually responsible for more acreage than that. Um, but that's the combined area of state, private, native corporation, DOI lands that are in the AFS protection areas. So it's huge. It stretches from, you know, Little Diomede Island, which you can see Russia from Little Diomede Island <laughs> all the way to, you know, <laughs> all the way over to the Canadian border from the Arctic Ocean down to the Alaska Range. It's a huge area yeah. and with almost no roads. Right. So you have, so there are different districts in Alaska, but then you kind of go by protection zones. Right. So that are BLM different. Alaska has three districts. There's an Arctic district, which is basically north of the North Slope, the North Slope, north of the Brooks Range. There's the Fairbanks district, which is 
the central and eastern part of interior Alaska and there's the Anchorage district, which wraps around all the way from southeast Alaska, all the way up to Kotzebue in northeast, northwest Alaska. But we've divided the Alaska Fire Service into zones. We have an FMO for every zone and a system FMO, um, other staff for each zone. And so we have four protective protection zones. There's one that just deals with military, with army withdrawn lands um, right around Fairbanks and Delta Junction. And then there's the upper Yukon zone for Eastern Alaska, Northeast Alaska, the Tanana zone for Central, uh, North Central Alaska, and then the Galena zone for Western and Northwestern Alaska. And each of those are huge. I think our smallest zone is Tanana zone with about 45 million acres. So, yeah, went on a detection flight last week, and yeah, that was it's a long ways to get to anywhere and a lot of water. <laughs> yep. So, and no roads. Yep. <laughs> or very few roads. No roads, very few roads. Yes. Oh, yeah, I can see see it being very different. Beautiful, though. Yes, it is. What are some, uh, maybe some challenges and successes that you've had within your peer? Probably the biggest challenge is just getting people to understand what's different and so they don't laugh every time we say Alaska's different. Because we say that a lot in national meetings or when people come up here and we're trying to explain, give them a tour, talk to them about what we do. And, you know, that's, that's the biggest challenge. The successes, oh, there's lots of successes. I mean, it ranges from... You know, seeing somebody who first year doing this and seeing them a few years later and watching their growth. And it's not just, and it's the growth of people who started as EFF in the warehouse and are now leads over there or supervisors. It's all across the organization because it's seeing people grow that way. And then, you know, seeing what we can do for creatively to make this a better spot and that has been things like um we needed a new dining hall in Galena. <laughs> it was secondhand atco units that had been there for 30 odd years and trying to figure out how to do that and it's taken a long time but using creatively using our maintenance staff fish and wildlife service maintenance staff that we paid to bring up from the lower 48 working with the engineering staff to build a really nice new facility. It's taken seven, eight years, and it'll probably open up this <laughs> summer about the time that we close our Galena. But it's things like that that have been some, you know, those are the, the tangible successes you can see like that. Um, it's what do we do to make this a little better place for people? Yeah, I can see, see that. I, I, the operation here is pretty amazing, actually. Um, and you actually have barracks, you know, with housing prices being so expensive in so many places around this in the United States. Um, yeah. You know, people are having problems with the getting people because, you know, housing and and then the cafeteria food that it's been excellent. Yeah. <laughs> I've been eating there every day for lunch. No, we, we are, we're really a throwback. I mean, I remember yeah. going to Biff C yeah. in 89, 90, 91, to um, going down there and being at Bitsy, and they had a dining hall at Bitsy. Right, yeah, back I remember then. that too. Prior to 90s, you know, prior to it becoming the Nif National, Nifsey, yeah. when it was still the Boise Interagency Fire Center. Right. 
Um, you know, and a lot of places had it. Uh, <clears throat> Redmond, they had a dining hall there, and they had barracks, but no more. We're we're a real vestige of hold out. We'll keep holding out. I want to come back. Yes. <laughs> so, what is your favorite memory? You know, I you prepped me for this, and I <laughs> I had a really hard time. So I wrote down a couple things um, as really favorite memories. I mean, I've been here off and on, well, mostly on since '91 um, at Alaska Fire Service in a lot of different roles. About the time I started in fires, 92. So. Yeah. And, you know, there was one time I remember as a fire specialist and I was in the Tannel Zone flying detection and it was a hot day and it was in a single engine airplane that was not the best airplane that I'd eaten a lunch that probably I shouldn't have eaten. <laughs> and I was not feeling so good. And then I looked out and realized, you know, there's Denali off the left wing and I'm out here getting paid to see this country and do this work that little people pay thousands of dollars to do once in a lifetime trip. And this is what I get to do every summer. That's your daily job. That's my job. And, you know, going out on a fire, I remember as an assistant FMO, took a, I see the couple thousand acre fire was one crew and it was the North Star crew up on Venati lands, privately owned native lands. And we just spent about a week every day. We just worked our way sort of semi-cold trailing our way around this fire. So every day we'd pack up <clears throat> our camp and helicopter would sling it to, we'd work our way around the fire decide where the next spot was going to be that we'd camp for the night. The helicopter would come in, sling our gear from where we'd been to the next spot and just worked our way around, you know. And yes, people have been there, but it's a place that was just gorgeous. So it was those opportunities of things like that or going out um, now as the manager, I for quite a while prior to COVID, I was trying to get out at least every summer and go visit the North Star crew for a couple of days. And so some of those visits to seeing them out there on the fires and talking to those first year um, volunteers who were out there trying to figure out, do I want to do this or not? Do I want to make this a career? And I told them, I tell them every year, I never planned to make this a career. Um, it's <laughs> shaped up as one. And I've been really lucky, but it was never what I planned. It may not be what you like doing, and that's fine. This isn't for everybody, but it's great. Um, yeah, I've just got so many really great memories of, you know, fun times with people, fun times um, out on fires, and just seeing things that I didn't know existed up here. Finding mussel shell, freshwater mussel shells on the little black river that are four and five and six inches long. That the sandhill cranes have dug up uh, and eaten, so it's it's all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, the last frontier, Alaska, the last frontier. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's just it's really fun. Yeah, and you you are actually getting ready to retire soon. Well, I'm turning fifty seven in September, so I'm I will be out of this position by the end of September. I'm hoping to transfer to a different job within BLM to keep my hand in BLM and in 
natural resource management, but just not necessarily in fire management. I've done this job for 12 years and that's long enough. That's time for somebody else to step in and maybe take it in some different directions, um, have some different ideas and, you know, hopefully keep this place going for a, a lot longer. It's been a really, really good spot to work. Um, great people. And that's what I tell people. It's, you know, job, jobs can be jobs, but people really enjoy when they enjoy what they do and they have a sense of purpose and mission. And that's what makes this place. So, yep. Well, thank you, Ken. Thank you for your service. Well, thank you, Jerry. It's been fun talking to you and fun doing this. And I'm really glad, even though we brought you up to take pictures, <laughs> and there hasn't been a lot of things to take a pictures fire of, the fire activity, <laughs> but it's been great to have you around for people and just another person who can spread the word of what's different about Alaska and what's special about this place. So yeah. thank you. Well, like I've said, you know, haven't seen a lot of fire activity. I did get to go on a detection flight, which we did look at a fire they're monitoring. And so that was cool to see how that, the whole process there, but also just talking to the people around here. It's been fabulous. We have a really good program up here. I'm happy to be up here for the short time that I am. (laughs) Okay. And hopefully I'll come back. Yeah, hopefully so. All right. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ken. We are back with another member of the Alaska Fire Service, DOM employee, Tasha Shield. Welcome, Tasha. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And I understand, well, we went out on a fire detection flight together one of the first days I was here. When you, you did those mainly as a fire specialist, which was talked about, but you are now a fuels specialist or fuel management specialist. Yep, that's correct. I'm a fuel specialist for the Tanana Zone. All right. And before we get into that, tell me a little bit how you got started in fire and how you ended up here. All right. So I grew up in Winnemucca, Nevada. I went to high school there. And as many people know, Winnemucca has seen a lot of fires over the years. When I was entering my senior year of high school back in 1999, I remember driving around downtown and seeing green pants everywhere. And, you know, the town was bustling with firefighters. And shortly thereafter, my sister got a call from the BLM. We were good friends with Mike Whalen and his family. And he said, hey, we need help in dispatch. And so my sister began working in dispatch as an AD in 1999. And I would drop off food for her at work late at night. And um, I graduated from high school in 2000. And I was back in Winnemucca in 2001. And I was working three different jobs and not really making any money. And my sister called and said, hey, we're looking for dispatchers. Do you want to come work with the BLM? And I said, absolutely. So I quit my jobs and I started working as an AD in 2001 um, in Winnemucca Central Nevada Dispatch Center. The next year I came back and um, I recognized that I wanted to get more into the out into the field and go see what the firefighters were doing out there. So in 2003, I was fortunate enough to get on a Helitac crew out of Winnemucca. And I worked there for three seasons and um, I really enjoyed my field time and being on wildland fires. In 2006, I had an opportunity to come up to Alaska and um, I came up as an AD to Galena, 
which is a remote station on the western part of Alaska. It was a phenomenal experience, but it was also a slow fire season. I was able to take an assignment to Tok, Alaska, where they had a permanent job. So I took a permanent job as a dispatcher in Tok for the state of Alaska. I worked there for a year and a half, and I recognized again that I wanted to get back out into the field. So in 2008, I applied for an operations position for Fairbanks Area Forestry with the state. And that was an awesome opportunity for me. Uh, we did hell attack and engine operations, so initial attack for the Fairbanks area, which is the hottest and driest area for the state. And it's a lot of urban interface fires, so quick moving, fast uh, paced fires. And I was able to move up from a firefighter one, I got my engine boss, my crew boss, I became a firing boss, uh, all the way up to task force leader. In 2015, I had my first child and um, I knew that initial attack wasn't gonna be work out for me for the long term. So in 2016, um, Alaska Fire Service Dirk Giles called and said, Tasha, we have a fire specialist position. We'd love to have you come over, apply for the job. He said, you know, there's opportunities that you could work in the duty office and, you know, uh, have more of a flexible schedule. So in 2016, I came over to Alaska Fire Service and I warned him that any minute I could, um, I was thinking about having another baby. And he said, don't worry, we're really family friendly here. So um, that year I went on many fires as a division trainee, I did plans. Um, it was a fun opportunity, but I did end up getting pregnant and had another baby in 2017. Uh, Alaska Fire Service was super flexible with me. They let me uh, work out of AICC, the Coordination Center, and let me have some flexible hours during that first year that, or first year with my second child. And then 2018 through 2021, I worked as a fire specialist and helped out in the duty office. And then in 2022, I decided I wanted to move over to the zones. So I took a job with the Tanana Zone as the lead fire specialist. And then we decided to stay in Alaska year round. And um, the, over the winter, I took the fuel specialist position. Wow. And you've done a lot. <laughs> yeah, I kind of have a very uh, mixed background. Yes. And you, you were on, uh, were you ever on an engine crew? Yeah, so um, with the, the state of Alaska, how they run their operations is, um, one day you'll be the engine boss, and then the next day you'll be on hell attack. So we would rotate positions um, throughout the cruise, and that kept us fresh so you're not on an engine all year or on hell attack all year. And that's with the state of Alaska, but then with the Alaska Fire Service, with BLM, they really don't have engine crews. Anymore. Yeah, we really don't have engine crews or necessarily hell attack crews. Most of our helicopters are just staffed with one manager and they go out and uh, do resource extraction, such as pulling smoke jumpers off the hill or, you know, other missions that are needed logistically. Again, because there's not a lot of roads in Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Never, never, it seems like most everything's done by air, for sure. So what what is it like working for Alaska Fire Service? Um. I love working for Alaska Fire Service, you know, coming from the state, which was an excellent opportunity. 
but um, Alaska Fire Service has a lot of depth in their program, you know, with fuels management positions, aviation, there's a lot of opportunities to move around within Alaska Fire Service. And if people have different inter interests, like the warehouse or the fire medic program, or, you know, the small engine shop, maintenance shop, there's just so many different aspects of Alaska Fire Service. And bringing us to your job. The most exciting position at Alaska Fire Service is the fire specialist program. So there's two different groups of fire specialists. There's fire specialists that work for operations, and that's just what we call a pool of fire specialists. And there's about generally 12 to 16 fire specialists when they're fully staffed. And the minimum qualification is IC4. And it's a great opportunity because there's so many different positions that you can fill for Alaska Fire Service fires or fires throughout the state or the lower 48. So you have a pool of fire specialists. What, what are their main jobs? Their jobs are to support the zone. So they might be flying detection for the zone. They might be going out on a IC type three incident as logistics or operations or plans, and they might be a staging area manager, telespot manager, ramp manager. So they're providing all, all the support for the type three incidents. So that's what is nice about fire specialists because you're filling in the holes of people that you might need with the multiple qualifications they have. Exactly. Or, or that you have, actually. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so it's, um, I remember my first uh, assignment as a fire specialist, I was sent out to Alakakit with instructions to go get ready to set up an, a type three team. So they told me to go hire the school, go <laughs> hire a boat, hire whatever vehicles you can. And at that time we could ride ATVs. And if we could hire personnel to help move supplies around the ramp that would be good as well and so I was dropped off on an airstrip and walked into the tribal council office and said I need to hire a school I need to hire boats and trucks and ATVs and we got that all done and then the logistics person came in and then I was able to go out on the fire and work as a division trainee. So you're kind of the <laughs> go between the logistics but just get it started and then mm -hmm. go from there. When you say hire a school, is it the building or like the whole school? <laughs> yeah, it's the building and it could be custodian okay. staff and it could um, also be personnel to cook food for oh, the team. So house the team. Mm -hmm. for that. Okay. Yeah. That was interesting. So is that common up here then to go to different villages and, and basically, hey, we need help? And Exactly. Yeah. That's what we do is... Um, when we know that the incident is going to be long-term and it's going to be going type three, we go and set up a forward operating base so we can have internet service, um, a phone line. Most of these villages don't even have cell coverage. So it takes the stress away of um, making all of your orders over a sat phone, which is constantly dropping off every five to 15 seconds. So it streamlines the process for ordering and for uh, plans for the 209s and 
and printing IAPs and being able to communicate back to dispatch and to the folks on the field. So is there some kind of agreement set up with villages then, or how does that work like ahead of time? Um, not necessarily. Usually it's an emergency hire agreement. So we're going out with paperwork. Um, we're moving more towards the SAMS.gov where we're asking them to put their um, equipment into that program and um, trying to go that route. But in general, it's an emergency equipment agreement. Like on a regular type four incident in Alaska, where you're not in a village, you know, you're just out in the bush. Usually how it, how it works out is you take an airplane from flight ops here at Alaska Fire Service, fly to the closest um, village, and then get on a helicopter and then get a ride out to the fire, create a heli spot. So that's where all your supplies are coming in and all your logistical needs are are coming into a heli spot. And then your only link back to dispatch generally is, yeah, we take a lot of boat rides as we're going to the fire. You know, we, a lot of times these fires are up and down river corridors, which is where the most values at risk are located. So you might be out on a gravel bar hiring a boat and your ICP might be on a gravel bar, which is always interesting because you never know if it's going to rain upriver and you're going to have to pull everything up off the gravel bar to higher ground. Yeah. So a lot of logistical challenges here. <laughs> uh, For sure. <laughs> yeah. So as far as logistics, that's usually what runs our operations. In the lower 48, uh, operations runs the fire. But here in Alaska, because everything is so remote, logistics sets the pace for our operations. Can we support the people that we have in the field? Can we get them the food and water that they need to work in the field? And also, do we have the supplies that we need to get the job done? So when we're going out on a fire, you start with a three-day order for your logistical needs, and then you try to maintain three days supplies, food and water for the next three operational shifts. And then, of course, as, as you're building this all up, you're starting to think about demob and getting all of this stuff out of there because you don't want to be um, done with the fire, but it's going to take three days of helicopters and airplanes to get all this stuff back to Fairbanks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like quite the operation. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what I love about it is um, I love Alaska fires because it's quite complex, but it's also very simple. You know, it's really intimate spike camps with a big yellow tarp with a fire pit in the middle, fresh food boxes coming in, which is always super exciting because the first three days, uh, we generally just eat MREs until the fresh food orders can uh, be filled. And so when you get that fresh food, you know, everybody's excited and, you know, people start cooking different things. And um, it's really fun to have that that campfire that we're all sitting around drying off our socks and our boots because our feet are always wet in Alaska. And it's just a, a fun place to get to know people and to connect with them. 
in a really remote environment. And sometimes it could be harsh conditions. Yeah, for sure. And I know like well, up here, you don't have shower units or catering units that go out with incident management teams. So you rely on those fresh food boxes, right? And so does ever so when I'm hearing everyone takes kind of a turn or something to to come up with ideas of how to or what to cook. I mean, what is a what's I guess what does a fresh food box look like? <laughs> so a fresh food box, um, in general, there's a lot of shelf stable foods. You know, you might have like canned peaches or corn or refried beans. There's pasta, tomato sauce, eggs in a carton. Uh, pre-cooked bacon that's shelf life um, available. And then there's also like ham and cheese and bread, tortillas. And so what we do when we get our fresh food boxes is we go out into the tundra and we dig a hole, a deep, deep hole until you hit permafrost. And you dig all that out. And then that upper tundra mat you tape it up to cardboard and attach a few sticks on it so you can upper uh, raise and lower the tundra mat and that insulates your food because it's sitting on ice and it keeps your food cool for the next three to four days. Um, the biggest thing that people are excited about about the fresh food boxes are the steaks. There's a steak for each person for that first three days. So every, every fresh food box that comes in has a steak for each person and a lot of hot dogs <laughs> and yardo sausage. <laughs> so then you end up cooking out there on the fire. Yeah, exactly. So in the morning, people wake up. There's usually one person designated to um, make coffee, coffee for the group. And um, everybody just makes their breakfast in the morning and then packs a lunch for the day. So maybe two to three sandwiches, some beef jerky, there's candy bars, there's uh, granola bars, and you just pack your bag with what you're going to eat for the day. And then when you get off the line, everybody kind of does it differently. Like some of the crews will send somebody back to cook a meal for everybody or a lot of overhead just cook their own dinners, whatever they want for the evening. That sounds pretty, yeah, that's definitely different than what the one's done in the lower 48. <laughs> yeah, I definitely appreciate not having to stand in the lines for the catering and and showers. It doesn't really matter out there. No, <laughs> everybody stinks, so it's okay. <laughs> does, that, does that help with the mosquitoes at all? It doesn't, <laughs> but the teach does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah everybody smells like deet anyways <laughs> yeah so. that's your deodorant <laughs> put another layer of deet on you're good <laughs> it's actually a joke in alaska is alaskans perfume is deet <laughs> and switching switching gears a little bit here this is awesome by the way fuels all right switching to fuels and your new job my new job so um alaska fire service is fairly new in the fuels department. Uh, in the past, it, we would um, manage a couple raw sites each year and just basically uh, brushing out around them and maintaining the heli spots that we need to get the helicopters in to do the raw maintenance. Um, and the fuels position was 
mostly used as an additional suppression position. And over the past couple of years, we've uh, noticed that we need to do more to protect villages in Alaska. So uh, a couple of years ago, we started looking at villages in Alaska and determining that what villages were the highest need for a fuel break around the village. So since uh, AFS is a protection service agency, uh, we actually do not have authority to manage land. Um, we work for the jurisdictional FMOs and agencies, and we provide a service for fire protection for them. So that's part of the reason we haven't been too involved in fuels projects in the past. But as a protection service, we found the need to try to get some lines in place around these villages because it's not a matter of if, but when there's going to be a fire in these remote communities. So that's the difference between Alaska Fire Service and a lot of the BLM districts uh, in the lower 48. So um, what we've been doing is we've been going out to rural communities and uh, establishing communication with the tribes and our tribes uh, are supported by corporations. So we work with the, the local tribes and the corporations and we go and take a look at the village and do a risk assessment and determine um, how much of a threat they are to a wildfire. So we create a document and, um, and then that feeds into a community wildfire protection plan. And uh, we help facilitate uh, the writing of those CWPPs. And uh, we come up with a mitigation plan and we work as subject matter experts with the villages and the corporations and try to help them get funding. So either they can do the work on their own land and the, through grants, or if they don't have the capacity or workforce that we can hire uh, crews to do that or use our agency crews to put in fuel breaks around these communities. So it's been pretty exciting. It's really um, a fulfilling job to go out to these native communities because each community is different. Each tribe has their own history and their own past and their own cultural um, significance. And it's really fun to meet the locals and get to know them. And having been a firefighter um, in the state of Alaska for the past 18 years, in the past we had an extensive um, EFF emergency firefighter uh, program that diminished over the past few years due to medical standards and base access onto Fort Wainwright, those crews have literally dissolved, but there's still personal connections of working with those people on fires um, from the past. So it's really nice to reconnect with uh, that community. And there's been some exciting stuff in Alaska over the past couple of years. We've developed contract crews through these native villages and corporations and it's fun to have them back on the fires. And it's really awesome for them because for 70 years, these native tribes have been 
relying on their work as emergency firefighters to help subsist them through the winter. And a lot of times that was their only job. So it's really good to have uh, locals working again in fire and, and their programs have been building up. And last year we put in a fuel break around Alatna, Alaska. And that was the first time we hired a local contracting crew from Alaska to do a fuel break in Alaska. So then those contracting crews could be used for fuels work too. Yeah. In the community. Yeah. So. It's really exciting. And like currently I'm working with several tribes or several villages in my zone. And what we're trying to do is uh, establish good neighbor agreements with them. And we're helping them get supplies that they would need to do these field breaks, such as chainsaws or weed whackers. And last year in Alatna, there was over 3,000 piles that were created. So getting an agreement with this community that they can burn those piles in the winter when the ground is frozen and we don't have to provide that service or be out there for months on end during the winter, well, they could just do it themselves and get paid for it. That's great. That's great for you <laughs> and for Alaska. To close out with you, it's been great hearing your story and all of the experience you have. It's awesome. But what is maybe your favorite experience or your favorite memory so far working for Alaska Fire Service? My favorite memory working for Alaska Fire Service. A few years ago, I was sent out to an area on the Yukon River. The Bible camp is how we referred to it. And I came in as an IC type three trainee and I had a group of smoke jumpers that were getting ready to time out. And there was actually, the Bible camp was in full effect. There was children there. The fire was still several miles away, but we were planning a burnout operation. And we were able to pull off the burnout operation and everything looked really, really good. And we were back in camp and I got a call from the IMET that said, there's thunderstorms in the area. And we're like, all right, okay. Let everybody know thunderstorms in the area and didn't think too much about it. And we were back at camp and I just heard this and I called Tina Hotshots on the radio and said, I think we need to go check out our line and sent some people out to go look at the line. And we had a little bit of a slop and we had to, um, we didn't have the structure protection all in place because we didn't want the children like tripping on hose and pumps while they were in camp. So it was like, hurry quick, let's get this uh, structure pro put in place. And our plan was if we needed to evacuate the, the children, we would take them by aluminum boat to an island um, in the river. So I was talking with the, the camp coordinator and I was like, I think we need to start thinking about evacuation in case this goes big. And as we were setting up the structure protection, the lightning, came over us and it was just the most intense lightning storm I've ever been in my life. 
and it was strike after strike after strike. And it was terrifying because you have, we couldn't evacuate the children on an aluminum boat <laughs> to a remote <laughs> island. And, um, you know, I'm worried about the safety of our firefighters, you know, who are trying to get the structure pro in place. And, and a miracle from heaven from Bible camp. We got torrential, torrential downpour and everything ended up being okay. But that was one of the most epic um, fire assignments that I had in my career. Wow. <laughs> I've heard some different stories about different fires up here and everyone has some crazy thing that's happened to them. Yeah. It was pretty, pretty intense. <laughs> the children were not frightened. The camp director did not want them to be alarmed. So as this is all going down, they're over there singing and dancing and continuing to participate in their Bible camp. Well, the firefighters and myself are scrambling <laughs> around. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. They were doing the rain dance. They were doing the rain dance. <laughs> Thanks, Tasha, for joining me today, telling me about your experiences. It's awesome. Well, thank you for having me. Okay. Hey, we're back with another member of the Alaska Fire Service, Yoram Bergeson. He is a fire, well, you're a wildfire operations technician. Yeah. Form, formerly a FOS, but, but we call it a wildfire operations technician now. Yeah. Great. You have worked for Alaska Fire Service how long? I just came here in March of this year. So okay. I'm brand new to the organization and also to Alaska. So it's pretty cool. We get a perspective from someone who's been around a long time, who ran this program for 12 years, soon to be retiring, and now to a newbie. Yeah. <laughs> a newbie yeah. on the crew. So it's cool to get your perspective. Yeah, it's good stuff. And it's every day has been, since I've been here, super intense learning. And uh, new perspectives, new policy guidelines, new people, new communication dynamics, uh, new uh, ways of thinking in an organization, which is good. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your background. Okay. So my name is Bjorn. And for those that have a hard time uh, saying it, it means bear in Swedish. So that You're in a good people, place then being in some, <laughs> some people call me bear. Yeah. I started my fire path in 1993 with Maine Forest Service. That was back in the days when we still did the step test. And then a lot of it was uh, all training with a hose pump, a lot of those kinds of uh, things that were useful for the, uh, the fire environment there. And then in 1996, moved to Fish and Wildlife Service and started working at Moosehorn National Wildlife Refuge. In 2000, moved to the Forest Service did 20 years of forest service, and then in 2020 moved to BLM, Department of Interior again, so came back around to DOI. Uh, through the years, the biggest part of my career in the beginning uh, was dealing with a lot of prescribed fire, doing prescribed fire specialist with Fish and Wildlife, and then forest service was great adventures of doing engine, hand crew, repel, also a number of years of aviation and hell attack. And then with DOI here, uh, continuing with being helicopter superintendent and then uh, moving to AFS here. So um, at this point, you know, it's uh, watching 30 years of uh, change, multiple radios, multiple Nomex styles, 
a change of uh, task books, leadership, uh, everything in between. So it's been really good. For me, I really wanted to be in the woods for my career. And that kind of settled back from when I finished up my multiple degrees with the University of Maine system. And like most firefighters, you know, we have multiple forestry degrees or wildlife management or something like that. And then we wind up around the end of a philosophy. But however, I really enjoy being out in the woods. And I kind of go back to that through the years of a focus of why did I really get into this profession? Over time, it hasn't necessarily been about the money. It's been about doing new things and adventures and other stuff like that. A lot of my career in the beginning is I wanted to go uh, join the smoke jumper programs. And so I tried to steer my career of doing multiple things, of doing engine hand crew, uh, multiple experience and fuel models in other places because I felt that I was going to need those things to bring to the table to try to go to those programs and bring uh, my diversity of experience with them. I guess in fortunate ways, I'll say that you can't control your control the ocean, but you can control your surfboard. So even though I tried several years to go the path to go to the programs, I was not successful, but I learned a lot about myself and I gained all these other experiences. And so that really helped me in the big picture. And it was a good path of leadership, learning a lot about myself and trying to also gain good experiences that now have brought me to the table here at AFS. What brought you to AFS then, or why did you, why did you decide to settle here? So where I'm at now is that um, I came to AFS to learn, and after all these decades of not just getting wrapped up into a management job or a single position or a place, is that there's always something new to learn. There's always another Viking adventure to be had. And so I really have come here to learn also the people, the times that I have interacted with the AFS folks down the lower 48, and then also being up here, the people are really, really important to me. And I like the work environment and the work dynamic and the teamwork that's involved with being here. So really it comes down to being here for the people. That's what we chose to do. And it's been fun. And it sounds like you have a very background so you fit in really well with all these different positions and jobs that you've done over the past, you're probably like, yeah, we can use you <laughs> for sure. Yeah. It's been good to be here uh, for several months and learn new ways. And I think that part of coming here and learning with people is that being in an environment that you try to be open and flexible to learn how things are rather than getting wrapped up into thinking that things need to be changed or whatnot. It's more of an environment of facilitating the change and being part of what's going on. So it's a lot of working together with some common goals. So your position as wildland fire operation technician, what do you, what exactly do you do? Some of my duties include, uh, training for the zone, uh, because the, uh, uh, Part of the protection area for AFS is broken out into various zones, and so I'm tied with the upper Yukon zone. And so uh, I support training for the part of the unit. Also, uh, being out in the field using instant commander, division, engine boss, crew boss, whatever is needed out in the field, 
supporting logistics at the Fort Yukon outstation with the other fire suppression specialists. Also getting involved with the logistics, supporting what needs to happen to help the folks that are on the field that are staffing fires. I'm starting to get into duty officer side of things. And then probably as the seasons progress, I'll probably be getting more into getting out and supporting the aviation operation and helping with operations on a type three level. So it's, it's a very diverse skill set that's needed for these positions. Sounds like it. And well, when I ran into you in the hallways here, I'm like, ah, oh, Lord, <laughs> yeah, I remember you from my, that's 20 years ago. <laughs> Worked with my husband, Miguel, but yeah, you would just come back from Galena managing a helicopter. Yep. Yeah. Going out there and helping out. And, uh, that's the fun part too, is like, I hadn't been there yet. So it was like another adventure to go out there and see, uh, the Galena zone and see what they're doing. And, and everybody, all the zones that do things uh, just a little bit differently as far as uh, just a little bit of basic stuff, but they have different land base, uh, different challenges, different pluses for all the zones. So what is it like uh, working for AS, working in Alaska? Um, What's different, I guess, about it than working in Alaska? And here I go with that different. Again. <laughs> okay. So I think the big things that I've observed here being here is a function of the environment. I'm enjoying being in Alaska. And after growing up in Maine and being in Minnesota, being in the landscape and the vegetation and the environment is very, very uh, much like home to me. So that is one thing that is good and is easy to be out in the woods for me. Um, what I'm finding about the people here is that through either their wintertime travels off or while they are here for the primary fire season, everybody here has some special experiences that somehow shine or that they are able to bring to the table or bring forward in their daily jobs in tandem with their lifestyle. So if you were to say that like um, uh, people here are their own version of uh, superheroes, you know, like Spider-Man or the, <laughs> the Hulk or Batman or that kind of thing, is that everybody has some kind of really cool set of superpowers, <laughs> whether they're an amazing cross-country skier or they're a really great logistics chief or they are a super articulate dispatcher that it's very good at communications. Um, some people may be uh, very good mountaineers that go to the, uh, the Himalayas. Uh, other people may be an extraordinary trapper that they go out to the Yukon and do these other things. And because of all this roll-up of different personality types and experiences, people are able to bring that um, as part of their jobs, too. And so their personality types shine with that. And I see that. And that's a very fun, special thing to work with people that um, everybody's from somewhere in Alaska <laughs> and they've all got really cool superpowers. So that's kind of how I look at that, you know. Even yeah. the people that are here in Alaska, it's interesting to hear they're different. People could be from different villages or different. Yeah. And, uh, you know, environment is a function of everything. And there are very, very special things that happen in the, the solstice. And when the daylight is year round, 
and you can see that out in <laughs> for 24 hours yeah around around the clock and seems then, like you're around maybe <laughs> and then also the on the flip side is that there are special things that happen in the middle of winter darkness the northern lights you know what the wildlife do you know fishing out on the lake all these other wintertime things that come with being up north and i think that going back to what it's like to work in an organization the environment is is really a driver of all of that with people being seasonal in nature permanent seasonal people are also able to uh kind of end their season when fall comes and the winter comes and then uh be away and decompress and also uh, do other stuff. So I think that there's a healthy work-life balance that comes with that. Um, people here also have generally a healthy lifestyle and healthy way of life. And that comes all the way down into uh, the organization. And going back to the, the people having superpowers, you know, I'm going to harp on that a little bit uh, because everybody here is, is really pretty amazing. When I go right, right down to the admin folks or the folks working in the warehouse, the folks over at the jump base, the people in the kitchen, the people working out of Kalina, everybody wants to be here. And it's not like uh, uh, it's a, a challenge thing or anything like that. And that makes a huge difference in an organization when people want to be there. And it's fun and it's positive and pretty supportive of people and people being themselves as a, as we need to. Yeah. That says a lot about the organization too. People want to be here. What's your favorite memory or experience working here? Oh boy. So, um, so far, so far <laughs> last year, I was fortunately, I was still working, uh, uh, down the lower 48 and I came up here with the ship and the crew. Uh, newer folks. Show up after. Yep. Uh, newer, newer folks on the crew. Um, many of them had not been to Alaska before and it was all new turf to them. And, uh, so we got into the mix with, uh, supporting the fires here on the zones. And the biggest thing that I experienced with that was seeing, oh, about 60 people on the road from the various regions different places I had worked, uh, old friends, um, people that I crossed paths with. And so it was really wild to be back here at a spot where during a really intense fire season, uh, everybody from the lower 48s come out here and I could see all these people and cross paths with all these people and connections. And that was very, very fun and special. And I think that's a big part of also being in, in the profession of fire is seeing all your friends on the road and like seeing you, Jerry, maybe, yeah. you know, Under it's, yeah, it's, it's been all these, these connections of people and, uh, 20 years later, here we are. <laughs> yeah, gosh, really. Um, so time moves quickly and that's a really special memory to me. It's just the experience of seeing all these people. Um, also here being up to, uh, cold foot and on the verge of the North Slope, I was able to go up there on a short mission and start to see uh, the gates of the Arctic and the, the stretch that is above us on the Dalton. And we have a, such an amazing, fragile, special 
ecosystem that we're surrounded with here at this workplace. And it is very, very valuable. And it really opened up my eyes to what we need to do as people to support them. And it is all wrapped up to into what we're doing as as the fire service support of the indigenous people, which I am very, very supportive of the tribes uh, nationally. Um, and then also what, what we got to change to, because it's not going to be a, something that we can go back and support the system, the ecosystem, the way it was, um, it's going to change into something else. So we need to work together on what it's going to be and try to help facilitate that because of all these other factors, environment, people, culture, all these things that are coming to change. So I think it's, from my standpoint of a learning thing, it's, it's exciting. And every day, you know, I come back, back to the, the dry camp and crash out for the night. My brain's just filled with, you know, something new from being at work. It, it's been fun. It's been fun. It's gotta be a pretty cool experience. Was there anything else you'd like to talk about while I have you here? Okay. Some things that I've, I've seen through the years, I've talked a little bit about, you know, seeing people on the road, supporting being out in the woods, I really encourage people in wildland fire as they're, they're moving up the chain or moving through their, their career is really maybe tied back into thinking about why you first got into this business or this profession and really thinking about how you can continue to carry that through your career and your time, bring that to the table to other people. There's that, that point here where we start out new and then we become, you know, part of the leadership at leadership levels. And then there's definitely the phase and point where we need to start teach and share. And because we have a challenge with trying to have organizational continuity in history, it's really important to share those things with the newer firefighters and the folks that are in the land management agencies. Uh, that's where the smoky generation is really huge. And listening to some of the folks in the tales of those kinds of things, it's like, okay, well, there's old technology and old ways that are opening new doors or could open new doors. So it shouldn't totally be abandoned. And it also is part of um, trying to have a good leadership path. So the words that I suggest for people is, you know, take care of each other. And that's huge. No matter where you are in the organization, take care of yourself, take care of the people around you and try to help out uh, where you can. This is a very, very challenging profession. It is very, very difficult to describe the organizational or organizational occupational hazards that come with that over long term. And so take care of yourself as best as you can. Yeah. I think that's great. It's a great way to end recession. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you for your time. And it's great to be here. Thank you all for listening and thank all the employees that helped with this sessions of podcast series that we're doing on Alaska Fire Service since I'm here in Alaska hit up a few people. So there's more to come. Stay tuned for next episode with 
some more folks from Alaska Fire Service. And to learn more about NIFC or the BLM, visit our website at www.nifc.gov. If you have any questions, comments, or topics or suggestions for future podcasts, email them by visiting the nifc.gov website. Scroll down to the Contact Us, use Wildfire Matters podcast in the subject line, and remember to follow us at BLM Fire on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you all for listening. Tune in for the next AFS episode. Until then, stay safe and be wildfire aware.